Hi listeners, this is Understand South Carolina, a weekly news podcast by the Post and Courier. It's been just over six months since the first COVID-19 cases were identified in South Carolina, and we're looking at how the pandemic has played out in the state since then. I'm Emily Williams. I'm Gavin McIntyre. We're going to be joined by two guests today. First, we'll be talking with Projects Editor Glenn Smith, who recently compiled a timeline of the pandemic in South Carolina since mid-March. He's going to help us talk through how we got to this point. More than 3,000 deaths and about 135,000 cases. Glenn's timeline begins with March 6th, the first day that COVID-19 cases were identified in South Carolina. At that time, there were two. Today, on Tuesday, September 22nd, the day we're recording this podcast, the U.S. death toll from COVID-19 surpassed 200,000. I wanted to start by reading the first sentence of the kind of introduction to this timeline. So here's that. What began as a trickle of cases has morphed into a way of life in South Carolina as the coronavirus continues its relentless attack on the state, infecting rural pockets and urban centers with ruthless efficiency. I wanted to talk about that way of life phrase and how we have kind of seen this pandemic change into that. It didn't always feel like that at the beginning, um, you know, mid-March or April, um, but it has become that in many ways in in our lives. So I wanted to ask about how you have seen that, maybe personally, um, but also in in how you cover a pandemic kind of day after day. Yeah. um, When we all started this in in South Carolina anyway, uh, early March, we we had seen the pandemic uh, move across the country from Washington State down from New York. And I think we're we're looking at this uh, in a very abject state of anxiety and fear, very similar to a hurricane approaching the coast. It, It seems to be coming day after day. And then March 5th, boom, we've got two cases here. I think at the time, you know, we approached it with a very similar uh, mindset. We we stocked up on toilet paper and paper towels and disinfectant wipes, and everybody huddled in their homes. And when you went out, it, it looked like some sort of dystopian landscape. Um, and, and I think there was that fear feeling that somehow they were going to figure out a treatment or a cure or a vaccine or something, and, and we'd come out of our holes similar to a hurricane, and the danger would pass. Instead, it just lingered and stayed, and the death toll mounted. And I think now, after many months, we've learned some ways to cope with it. But I think it's changed the way we live our lives. I mean, I know for myself, I, I don't go out to eat in indoor restaurants anymore or hang out in brew pubs like I like to do. Um, I, I think it's changed the way you relate to people and how you see your friends and um, just normal activities. Like if I'm going to the store, I'm, I'm making sure to grab my mask and my hand sanitizer and things like that, things you would never would have thought of before. So I think we've learned to sort of incorporate it into our lives while seeing the daily statistics come out um, and, you know, sort of tracking it as, as the statistical um, operation. How did you go through the major events of how this has played out in South Carolina and, and kind of pull out moments to illustrate for people that that progression um obviously there were a lot of different moments uh to to sift through how did you go through that process well so i started keeping this in early march right around the time the first cases popped up i said uh, it'll be useful there's probably going to be it's going to be such a long drawn out event 
and the way time sort of became elastic during all this, and you kind of lost track of the days and, and where things were, I, I wanted some reference points and, and when things were happening. So I started keeping a daily log of this back in early March, and it's now grown to about 60 pages, um, and I just update it every day. And then comes this sort of nightmarish task of calling that down, which always seems, uh, when I try to do one of these timelines, it seems uh, easier in my head than when actually with the enterprise, because there are so many important days in this. Um, so I think I'm looking for events uh, such as, you know, March 24th, when the city became the first, the city of Charleston became the first city in the state to impose some sort of stay at home in order. Um, April 6th, when, when the governor, uh, finally decided to put a statewide order in effect after much prodding from the local level and a sort of a patchwork of rules around the state. Um, then there was, of course, the May, May 4th when um, they, become, they began to roll back the restrictions and open things up. So I'm looking for important dates along the timeline and also um, projections and, and, and things of note and things on a world wide scale that influence how we are here. But one thing that like jumps out at me is when you look through these is early April, we were predicting if things got really bad, we might see 278 cases, I think it was, by August 1st. And then when we reached August 1st, it was more like 1,638 cases. So, you know, vastly worse than we originally suspected. So I think it's helpful to have that context. And I feel like there are some moments in the timeline, looking back, that seem pretty surreal, moments where it's clear that the rally that happened after what those people had predicted, are there any of those for you, and which ones? Again, I think that one in particular stands out. When I, when I look at some of those death projections from the early state and, and how far off we were, and um, you know, some, some of the initial guidance early on is we just wash hands and and keep our distance from people. Uh, we really don't have to change our way of life in, in any respect, or, you know, when people say it, it'll just magically disappear. Uh, obviously, those, that, that wasn't the case. And it, it, we, we've learned so much about the virus, right? In, in the very beginning, there, there was talk of you didn't need to wear a mask. Uh, it probably wasn't airborne, and now it seems it's mostly airborne. So it's, so there's, there's all these things that sort of stand out. Yeah, I know some of those for me when I was looking through it were um, April 16th. That was when Governor McMaster reopened boat ramps. And you included a, a quote that he was saying, the end is in sight, which, of course, thinking about that now, that was, again, mid, mid-April. Um, I think it has been accepted at this point. We have no idea where, where an end is. And I think the idea of a quote-unquote end has changed um what's your what's your sense of that i think like you said there was this idea earlier on that there would be more of a defined end and i think that's gotten much fuzzier now yeah i I think there was always that hope that somebody would come up with this this miracle cure or that uh all the early warnings that a vaccine could take a year or more to produce uh were somehow off base and that you know science would triumph and, and we'd be able to go back to normal in, in no time. And as you point out, April 16th, when we start to roll back the, the restrictions, you know, the governor's saying it's, it's way too early 
to celebrate, but the, the end is in sight. And, you know, a lot of people were saying things like that around the same time the president was saying, let's, let's liberate some of these states. You know, we're, we're, it's, it's pretty much on the downward slope at this point. And, of, of course, that, that wasn't the case. When we started to roll back things, we, we saw it get much worse. And, again, back in June, they're predicting um, 2,400 might die by October 1st, and we've already shot way past that as well. So I think those seeing the predictions and seeing how much worse it is and how some of these hopeful, optimistic takes on the virus, how they didn't pan out, it, yeah, it is pretty surreal at times. And we've currently surpassed 3,000 COVID-19 deaths in SC, and me and Emily have discussed in a few of our podcasts recently about colleges and K-12 through openings in the state. And so what are we watching for next in terms of the coronavirus? Well, I think we're, we're waiting to see how this experiment with the schools works out, for one. I mean, there's, there's some that are trying to come back full-time, some that are doing a hybrid model. Um, you know, and with varying degrees of precautions in place, it, it remains to be seen how that, that will work out. Obviously, the, the University of South Carolina struggled with some pretty uh, skyrocketing numbers since they opened. Uh, hopefully, they'll be able to get that under control. Um, you know, there's, there's ongoing research about how the mask mandates are working. Those seem to suggest so far everything that, that that DHEC is looking at seems to suggest some, some pretty dramatic uh, declines in new cases in the areas uh, covered by the mask mandate, which is about, I think, about 40% of the state at the, at the moment. And there have been some challenges to the mask mandate, like in uh, Mount Pleasant. Do you think we'll see more of that going forward as people, you know, we're still adjusting to this kind of new normal and, you know, living with wearing masks and hand sanitizer? Do you think more people will kind of challenge this this kind of mandate, or will you think people kind of accept it as, you know, the way of life now? Uh, I think it's a mixed bag there, right? I think uh, the longer we go under restrictions, the more people begin to chafe at those because we're a nation founded on liberty and, and freedom of movement, expression, and, and all that. And when people tell you you should do things or you must do things, we, we don't seem to like that all that much. So the harder people push, the harder people push back. I, I, I only imagine that's going to get more because people miss what, what they don't have. Like they miss going on the water. They miss going to the beach. They miss, you know, they miss going to the movies. They want to do these things. They, they desperately want things to return to normal. Um, even though the science suggests that if we push that, you know, too hard, it's going to get a lot worse, particularly with flu season coming. Thanks so much for um, you know talking with us today and talking through that that timeline, and also for for keeping that record of everything. Like you said, sixty pages long, but it's it's helpful to be able to look back and look at those different points and um, kind of track how things have have changed in the last six months so um thanks so much for for helping to explain that with us yeah like i said i think it's a it's a helpful uh tool for um just to, to chart events and i know even as, as we do stories and the coverage going through you know piles and piles of emails from from government leaders and trying to understand things better to have those reference points those touch points along the way and to you know remember what was happening when because this this has been an enormous amount coming at all of us for so long 
uh, at times it's hard to make sense of it all. So I, I think having this reference point is, is, is helpful in that regard. We also spoke with Ricky Dennis this week, who wrote a story about hospital chaplains and how the demand for them in hospitals has changed during the pandemic and also how their roles have changed. So you wrote that COVID-19's devastation transcends the physical and it just doesn't hurt those in inflicts. Can you speak more to that and what you heard directly from healthcare workers and chaplains about how this pandemic is kind of affecting them? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so um, I think the main idea really is that what, uh, you know, healthcare uh, staff, um, just starting out with them, have been experiencing is just a lot of uh, exhaustion, a lot of fatigue, um, and especially at the onset of the virus, um, a lot of fear. Um, really, one of the things I heard from a lot of medical staff, um, you know, especially, you know, March and April, was that there was a lot of uncertainty um, with the virus. And because of that, there was a lot of fear from hospital staff um, about them potentially taking the virus home uh, to the family members. Um, and then you had the family members of the, the hospital staff, you know, fearing, of course, for their loved ones and, and worrying that they might be infected with the coronavirus. Um, so there was a lot of that uh, uh, going on, especially at the uh, the onset. Uh, and then for the the, the hospital, uh, you know, chaplains, uh, there's this, uh, you know, same kind of level of, of fear and anxiety as well, because, you know, their jobs are changing and they're not, you know, really able to provide um, the emotional uh, support they're used to providing um, in the same way that they're used to uh, providing it. Uh, and then, uh, you know, just going back to, to the hospital staff, I think one of the things, uh, one of the things that they've kept sharing with me was that, you know, their inability uh, to, um, you know, facilitate family members of COVID patients to help them in providing the emotional support. Because, you know, a, a huge thing, especially for somebody who is uh, you know, suffering from this kind of disease is having your family members present with you um, to kind of help you navigate those waters. Um, and that was taken away because of the virus. So that, um, you know, extra kind of burden of not only providing physical aid, but also also emotional support then falls on the hospital staff. And of course, that, you know, is, um, you know, almost a too heavy a burden for anybody to, to bear. So um, that's really how all of this has been kind of weighing on both the hospital staff and, and the uh, chaplains as well. And can you, you know, obviously it's been a tough time. Uh, you know, people are reaching out, especially now, spiritually. Can you talk about some of the challenges the chaplains have faced uh, in trying to provide this support? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, for anyone who may not know, um, pretty much the role of, of a hospital chaplain, and hospital chaplains essentially are just um, ordained, uh, most of the times they're clergy members, but not all the time, but they're uh, usually ordained, trained uh, clergy professionals um, who are present in the hospital to simply provide a spiritual care and answer any kind of emotional or spiritual concerns um, that a patient might have. So, um, and it really is not really particular to any kind of certain religion. Um, most chaplains are used to ministering and helping persons, whether they have a belief or whether they, you know, don't claim any particular religion. It really is just open to anyone who has kind of any spiritual um, kind of concerns. So that's usually what they, um, that's kind of their job in a nutshell. Uh, for the chaplains, um, what they have been observing is simply just an uptick um, in the number of hospital staff um, who have been reaching out to them uh, to help them 
with any kind of spiritual concerns uh, that they might have. So at uh, just MUSC, um, just as an example, they've noted a 20% uptake in the number of hospital staff members who have actually reached out to them for spiritual and emotional support. Um, I think last year, um, I don't remember what the number was last year, but that 20% growth brought them to just under 200 uh, hospital staff members that they have, um, you know, been, been serving uh, throughout the year. So uh, now the, 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 um, the ways that their job has kind of changed is that uh, they're not as physically present, the chaplains, um, as they're used to, as they're used to being. So uh, there have been, um, you know, times where uh, from like, let's say 11 p.m. at night to like 7 a.m. or where because of the coronavirus and because of some furloughs, uh, the chaplains couldn't be physically present um, in the hospital. Uh, so when a patient uh, died uh, or was nearing, you know, would be nearing death, um, rather than the chaplain being physically present for that moment, they would just be on call, um, you know, and, and, and operating over the phone. So that's, that's, that's very difficult because, you know, ministers, especially a field of chaplaincy, it, it relies heavily um, kind of on nonverbal communication and, you know, hugging and embracing and things like that. Um, and a lot of that was really stripped away because of, because of this virus. So um, they, they really had to, um, you know, you know, rely more heavily on their, you know, their words and, and, and prayer and things like that, um, using kind of, um, you know, virtual uh, platforms and things like that to kind of minister to, to hospital staff members um, in this time. Um, now, if you talk to some chaplains, um, you know, they'll be honest and they'll tell you, look, I mean, if there have been times where a nurse, you know, would just be coming to them with open arms um, and want to embrace and it just was something that they just couldn't deny. So, you know, there is some, some kind of, um, you know, realistic, I guess, uh, uh, views about it. But, you know, in, in a nutshell, it, it has changed the way that they um, have been doing their jobs um, quite a bit. I'm wondering, what gave you the idea to write this story? I thought it was a really interesting perspective that made you um, think of a role that maybe didn't come to mind right away when you're thinking of the pandemic, um, these, these chaplains and the role that they play. How did you get this idea? Yeah, yeah. So um, I actually got a shout out Lauren Petraka, one of our uh, photographers. She was actually, I think, covering a um, a COVID related story um, at Trident. Uh, and I think uh, she just got in a conversation with one of the, I think it might have been one of the nurses and the uh, public relations uh, professionals there who uh, just kind of mentioned kind of how all of this is, is weighing on the the nurses and hospital staff spiritually. Um, and they just kind of said that they'd be open to the ideas. So she, of course, she shared it to me. And she's actually the one who took the photos you know, for the story as well. Uh, and, you know, and I really thought it was a good idea because I think, um, you know, it's, 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 it's always easy. And even I mentioned this in the story, you know, I think one of the first things we think about when we think of COVID is kind of the physical aspects of it. And, you know, of course, it's it's, it's killing people and it's causing a lot of physical suffering. Uh, but there's a lot of emotional and spiritual suffering that, that goes in, along with that as well. Um, and it's not something, you know, that I have seen a ton of coverage of. I mean, I, I've seen a few stories of hospital chaplains, but it's, it's always kind of secondary to the to the physical aspects of it. So. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of where the idea came from, and we were just happy to, to kind of run with it. What have you heard from healthcare professionals when you directly asked them about the spiritual aspect of their job right now? I mean, I think one of the things that's really striking, and you mentioned earlier, is the fact that because of 
COVID-related precautions, sometimes a healthcare worker is the only person with a patient when they when they pass away. I mean, that's a, like you said, a, a really big emotional burden for them. What did you hear directly from from healthcare workers when you, like I said, asked specifically about that spiritual component at this time? Yeah, yeah. So one of the nurse, uh, uh, I think her name was Kim Campbell. She's a she's a nurse case uh, manager at Trident, and one thing she said to me that really stuck out is that you know she uh, you know sees patients as family. Um, you know, like for her, the, these COVID patients aren't just you know people, and you know especially you know people on the outside of you know hospitals and, and folks who this virus hasn't impacted you personally. Um, you may just kind of look at these death counts as numbers um, and, and not so much as people. Uh, well, for these healthcare professionals, they, you know, they take them as kind of their own and they become family. So uh, when one of them does, you know, pass away and when they see them kind of suffering, um, it, it, it played uh, in the way Kim put it was that it, it almost puts you kind of in a spiritual kind of desert or in a spiritual kind of dry place in a valley to where um, you're really just um, struggling with that kind of sense of loss and emptiness um, and grief. Um, you know, that that a family member would. I mean, it's like, you know, any family member losing a loved one, um, you take it, you take it to heart. So uh, so that's that's the way she put it, which which really um, stuck out to me is, is, is this idea that you know, these healthcare staff take these individuals as as family members um, and, and it hits them pretty, you know, pretty hard, even if they don't show it, because, you know, a, a lot of nurses are, are, are pretty tough and, and very you know, and even the chaplains would say they don't, you know, they won't always tell you how they're feeling unless you ask them. So, um, you know, they, but for her to, to say that really stuck out to me. I mean, it kind of shows you um, you know, how they're um, impacted personally, you know, by, by the losses that they're seeing on a regular basis. And so obviously there's, you know, restrictions about, you know, interacting with people due to the pandemic, but how have the, you know, hospital chaplains been, you know, working around that to still provide, you know, the staff, you know, uh, moral support and, you know, uh, connect with them one on one. So, you know, they aren't so, you know, brought down by this uh, virus. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so like I said earlier, so so, they, you know, there are restrictions, um, you know, technically on, on you know, touching and, and hugging and things like that. But uh, the chaplains, as far as an in-person, the in-person aspect goes, you know, they're still doing um, kind of their, their daily kind of rounds. Um, usually most chaplains, when they come in, you know, to work for a shift, they'll, um, you know, go, you know, to the nurses stations, to, to the hospital rooms and just kind of check and, you know, just say, hey, you know, is there anything um, I can do for you? Is there any way I can, you know, help you? Um, I remember one chaplain saying, you know, she was, um, you know, making, you know, her rounds, um, and, and one of the, the nurses, um, but of course this was early when the virus just broke out and things were you know, pretty busy, pretty crazy. Um, and she went to the chaplain and said, hey, you know, um, can you pray for me? So she said, oh yeah, you know, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll say a prayer. She said, no, like right now. Um, so they actually like stopped, you know, in that moment um, and said a prayer together. So um, that aspect is, is still happening. There's, there's still some level of, of you know, in-person presence, um, but they are doing, you know, a lot more online things. They're using, uh, you know, the, the, the hospitals kind of in-house communications to send out um, daily meditations, um, daily prayers and, 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 and other things to, to kind of keep them encouraged. Um, one of them mentioned that a local like church made like goodie bags um, for the emergency department staff to kind of keep them encouraged. Um, and they're also collaborating with other uh, departments um, like the uh, 
music and arts groups at MUSC, which is one thing I thought was pretty interesting. So they have, um, there's already a component in MUSC, in MUSC um, that, that offers uh, uh, music um, as a way to, to uplift the spirits of the people in the hospital. Uh, so the chaplains actually partner with them um, to where before when they would go make rounds and before the, the guitarists would, would play their music, um, that they would actually start that effort off with a scripture reading and, and some sort of encouraging word um, to kind of keep them, keep their spirits uplifted as well. So um, they're trying to, you know, use all of the, the means and resources they have, um, you know, virtually to, to, to keep folks encouraged, but also still, still maintaining a, some level of, of in-person presence as well. I know you wrote too that that chaplains shared some of the more memorable experiences that they've had during this pandemic, and I know there's at least one that was a positive example, a, a wedding that they got to preside over. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, one of the chaplains uh, at MUSC he mentioned that um, you know during the pandemic, the, the the moment that stuck out to him was he had the opportunity to. Uh, facilitate a wedding for two uh, of the hospital staff members. Uh, so of course, you know, like everyone else's, you know, wedding during this time, they, you know, had to um, alter their plans, had a, you know, smaller amount of people, um, but they actually got married, I think, in one of their um, backyards um, and had it outside. And of course, the folks were socially distanced and, you know, the chaplain, you know, of course, had the opportunity to facilitate that. Um, and the way he kind of phrased it was that, you know, it was it was it was a positive thing, not only because it's a wedding. I mean, a wedding is always a happy thing, but at, at a moment of time where there's so much um, kind of despair and uncertainty about the future and, and so much death and things like that, it was good to see um, two people come together um, and, and plan kind of for an optimistic future um, and, and celebrate union and, and love in, in the midst of such a, uh, um, a moment that appears to many people to be hopeless. So. Um, so yeah, so 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 that was that was kind of a, a positive in 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 all of the you know stressful situations that we're that we're seeing. You know, just going back to just kind of the the spiritual component, um, you know, about it. I mean, you know, the idea of and, and the goals of, of chaplains, you know, is um, you know is is always to kind of help connect people to kind of. Um, you know, meaning and, and purpose in kind of difficult times. Um, so I think you know, that that's one thing that a lot of people are, you know, kind of searching for as we continue to deal with this virus is, is try to connect themselves to some sort of source of, of, of meaning and, and hope and, and purpose. So, um, you know, I think for, you know, for anyone, you know, who finds themselves kind of wrapped up in fear and, and despair during the virus that, um, you know, try to, connect your mind to a source of, you know, meaning, what gives you meaning, what gives you purpose, and what gives you hope, and, and that might help kind of help you carry the load. So, yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining us to talk about this story today and also for sharing that perspective in your reporting, and we really appreciate it. Thanks so much. No problem. Thank you for having me. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier. Our music is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music on Spotify at Billy Fountain. We'd love to know what you think of this show. You can reach us at understandsc at postandcourier.com or on Twitter at understandsc. If, if you're a fan of this show, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcasts app. Keep up with the latest headlines at postandcourier.com. We'll see y'all next week.